It's Tuesday, October 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump has been released from Walter Reed Military Medical Center. His doctors say that he's improving, but also say he is not out of the woods just yet. As Trump heads home, Republicans are also battling other issues as well. The confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett has come into question, since some GOP senators have also tested positive. Daniel Lippman, White House reporter at Politico, joins us for more. Next, the economic recovery of the U.S. has been uneven, as some workers and companies are showing signs of coming out fine, while others face an uncertain path. The pandemic has been kind to those that can work from home and the businesses that cater to them. But lower-wage workers and those tied to tourism and public gatherings have suffered. Teo Francis, business reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the K-shaped recovery. Finally, as some college campuses have been exploding with COVID-19 cases, Colby College in Maine has been keeping the numbers down with mandatory mask wearing, students willing to follow the rules, and one of the nation's most rigorous testing programs. The college has poured $10 million into its response plan and tests students twice a week. Chris Quintana, national education reporter for USA Today, joins us for how they're keeping the numbers low. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And now I'm better, and maybe I'm immune, I don't know. But don't let it dominate your lives. Get out there, be careful. We have the best medicines in the world, and it all happened very shortly, and they're all getting approved, and the vaccines are coming momentarily. Joining us now is Daniel Lippman, White House reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. Thanks for having me. There's a lot going on right now. Republicans are going through multiple crises as the coronavirus has kind of taken hold of the White House. It's thrown a lot of stuff into turmoil in the Senate to see the timeline of voting on Judge Amy Coney Barrett to be the next Supreme Court justice. There's a lot of things going on, but I wanted to start off with the presidency. As everybody knows, President Trump has been diagnosed with COVID-19. He's been receiving medical attention at Walter Reed. He's going to be going home. He was tweeting that he's going to be going home, uh, but he also put this under his tweet. He's been feeling really good. He said, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. We have developed under the Trump administration some really great drugs and knowledge. I feel better than I did 20 years ago. I don't want to start there, Daniel. What does that say about how the president is handling this whole situation and will continue to handle it? It still seems like he's downplaying this whole thing. Yeah, you can just read the tweet, and it's it's pretty evident that he doesn't think it's that serious. And so we all thought that he would be chastened by, you know, a couple of days in the hospital. But turns out he's saying stuff that is not particularly helpful to the Fauci's of the world who want Americans to take this virus seriously. You know, what do you say to if the families of the 200,000 plus Americans who have died of coronavirus, like, don't be afraid of it? That's not a message I think that will sell well among people who know folks who've died or gotten sick. And there was a big question on how would this whole thing affect President Trump and his supporters? You know, would it make him a more sympathetic figure or, you know, is it just going to embolden him as it kind of seemed like it did? I mean, that's one of the things that they have to navigate going into the election even, which is only, you know, less than a month away now. You know, Republicans want Trump to take this virus seriously. And most Americans, they know that this is a serious thing because their daily lives are totally affected by this. And so it's a case when you have President Trump 
kind of wanting to rush out of the hospital when he's not totally cured of coronavirus yet. He's not a superhuman Iron Man type figure. And Republicans, they look at the numbers in the suburbs and they say that Americans are tired of the lockdown a little bit. They want to kind of get life back to normal. But they also know that if you open up too quickly, then you have to shut down again. Uh, you know, hopefully Trump won't have to go to the hospital again, but that's definitely a possibility if his condition worsens. Yeah. Uh, you would expect the doctors to try to urge him to stay a little bit longer, but he just doesn't like the press of him you know, and the public perception of him as being hobbled by the coronavirus. He wants to kind of get back on the road, do the debate you know, about a week. And so this whole social distancing thing and the mask wearing, I, I just don't see him changing that much. On the other hand, we've been talking about how so many in the president's inner circle and Republican senators have even come down positive with COVID-19. How does this affect the nomination process of Judge Amy Coney Barrett? They were on a fast track timeline. They wanted to start October 12th and have a vote very soon. But there's three Republican senators that are positive, two specifically that are on the Judiciary Committee, which are going to be voting on this. So that could possibly push the timeline back as well, when it was seemingly a slam dunk before. Yeah, you have Tom Tillis from North Carolina. You have Mike Lee from Utah, who are both on that crucial committee. So it's kind of up in the air if this is going to go through, because Republicans need to push it through now before the election, because if it's a Biden win, then they could definitely lose you know, enough Republican votes who would say, let's have the next president, Joe Biden, nominate whoever he wants as the candidate for this job. And so I still think that there's a greater chance of 50-50 in terms of getting Amy Coney Barrett through. She's mm -hmm. seen as a pretty rock solid. She's not going to have any Kavanaugh sex scandal skeletons in her closet, but it's kind of a matter of logistics and whether if those senators improve their health or if they uh, take a turn for the worse. It and, seems like they'll probably be fine, but you just never know with these situations. And my understanding is that senators have to vote in person. So if they're not cleared just yet, it'll either push the vote back or they just won't even make the vote. Correct. And so and Democrats are not going to vote for this person uh, on the Judiciary Committee. For your latest story, you, you also spoke with uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who's also facing some tough times for in his reelection bid. How is he faring through all of this? So he had a debate last night, which he did pretty well in, but and he'll, he'll be a superstar during the next couple of weeks of hearings, if they do have hearings for Amy Coney Barrett. But he is having to contend with a tough challenge from Jamie Harrison, his Democratic opponent in South Carolina, which is a pretty red state. And, you know, Graham is tied pretty closely to Trump. And so that has made it harder for him to be known as his own man. So that has been a drag on his re-election chances, but it's still pretty conservative, the state. And so uh, and he's getting back up millions of dollars from Republican committees trying to save that seat. So he'll probably be fine. But we always thought that because he was allying so closely with Trump, that it would make it harder to get those independents to vote for him. But it seems like the bet he's made is he's just going to go all in on Republicans and conservatives who like the fact that he is good friends with Trump. Daniel Lippman, White House reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The thought that Senate Republican would go up to $2.2 trillion is uh, outlandish. Joining us now is Teo Francis, business reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Teo. Good to be here. I wanted to talk about the economic recovery of the country right now as we continue to go through the pandemic. 
A lot of people were hoping for some type of V-shaped recovery, U-shaped recovery. That's when, you know, it obviously drops down very sharply, but recovers very quickly. Or in the case of a U, it kind of takes a little longer to come back, but it comes back still nonetheless. But what we're seeing out there is a little bit more of a K-shaped recovery. So uh, really a kind of a divide between people. People on an upper arm are recovering much more quickly and, and getting back to normal levels. People on the lower arm are not. So, Teo, tell us a little bit about how the country is recovering so far economically. I mean, if you look at the overall numbers, we're clearly coming back from a deep round of economic crisis. But for some people, that recovery is almost done. You have essentially white-collar workers, people who can do their jobs from home. You have companies that either employ white-collar workers primarily or provide services that can be done at a distance. You have highly educated people. For them, this recovery is well on its way. And in fact, at some companies, really, there's been kind of a boom in demand for things like cloud services or grocery stores. There's been you know, a, a rise in, the, in shopping for necessities for companies like Amazon. Things are actually better than they were. Home Depot catering to people who are sort of adding on to their house or improving their house and yard. But the other half the, or the other part of the population is on that lower arm of the K. These are people whose jobs depend on face-to-face contact and yet don't benefit from this demand for, you know, home building supplies and that kind of thing. These are people who are, uh, in many cases, on the lower end of the educational spectrum, people who are on the lower end of the wage spectrum, and then places that are really heavily dependent on tourism and travel, which, of course, are industries that have been really hard hit. So let's break it down a little bit. As far as how it goes for workers, it really does seem to be that people and the industries and all that, that were able to send their employees home to work from home really are doing the best. And then the businesses that are catering to them, this kind of work from home thing really seems to be a major turning point in how well people are doing. If you think about it, the economic crisis was brought about because of the shutdowns that were done in response to a virus, right? And a virus transmits, you know, it's contagious among people when they're in relatively close proximity to each other. So the shutdowns were aimed to stop that. And so what did you do? You you really sent people home. And if you could keep working, like I can keep working, I can do my job from home. Uh, a lot of white collar workers can, and they did. And their companies adapted and that took a little effort and probably a little bit of expense, like more Zoom meetings and, and maybe some people got allowances for a desk chair or something at home. And that actually prompted some spending, but a lot of people can't do that. There are some jobs that it's just very difficult to do at home. Some of those have been coming back as, you know, or the auto garages have reopened and that sort of thing. Places where maybe people aren't face-to-face with their customers or one another quite so much, or you can adapt the business model to that. But there are businesses where that's not the case. Think about a movie theater. Think about live sports. Think about theaters and concert venues. I mean, these are all places where people go to be together to see something live and in person. You mentioned movie theaters. Regal Cinemas is closing, basically suspending all operations in the United States. Disney announced 28,000 layoffs last week. Uh, You know, these furloughs are becoming permanent. And so they're really feeling the pain of it. And that's just kind of prolonging how long their return will be. In a real sense, what you're seeing is the cautious optimism of the first part of the pandemic 
really turn into pessimism for a lot of people. And one thing they ask is, is they ask people whether they think their uh, layoffs are temporary or permanent. And just as the summer has worn on and now we're into fall, you really saw fewer and fewer people saying that they thought their layoffs were just going to be temporary. In other words, there's this realization that at least for certain segments of the economy and places in, in the country, this is not going to be a temporary thing. This is going to drag on. You know, I suggest everybody go and read your article because you lay it out really well. But, you know, there's the workers, there's the industries and there's the regions. Also, you mentioned tourism, all these states and cities that dealt heavily with tourism. They're seeing an uneven return. Hawaii, because their travel restrictions in place has seen a big downturn. Las Vegas, the same way, Los Angeles, New York, all these big hubs where people would go all the time. You know, they're not going or it's harder for them to return as well and their workers as well. You look at two places right next to each other, like Nevada and Utah. These states are literally next door to each other. Nevada has been hit very hard, and Utah is is among the less hard-hit states. And a big part of that is this dependence on face-to-face, in this case, tourism-related activity. Teo Francis, business reporter at The Wall Street Journal, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. We're going to test their students often and repeatedly. So that looks like initially three times a week. And so that, you know, that's a lot to be tested. And now it's down to two times a week, which is is still a bit more than most of the American population, I imagine, is being tested. Joining us now is Chris Quintana, national education reporter for USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. I wanted to talk about colleges and going back to school There's a lot of schools that have gone back in different forms or fashion. A lot of them have been doing the online instruction. A lot of them have also had in-person classes. And what we've been hearing is that there's a lot of cases spiking out of some of those colleges. Chris, you wrote about one college in particular, Colby College in Maine. They have a crazy testing regimen that they're doing, but it's actually helping to keep cases down. They're required to wear masks almost all the time. But as I mentioned, the numbers there are very low and they have a lot of stuff going for them that helps them in all this. But this could possibly be a model for other schools. So, Chris, tell us a little bit about Colby College and how they're keeping the numbers down. So back in the summer, they announced this this big plan, a $10 million investment. And part of it was they were going to test their students often and repeatedly. So that looks like initially three times a week. And so that, you know, that's a lot to be tested and now it's down to two times a week, which is, is still a bit more than most of the American population, I imagine, is being tested. You know, another part of that is, is what you mentioned, that the mass mandate. Another part of it is just messaging and also emptying out the dorms a little bit and using other space available to spread students out a little bit. The college had a hotel that they were planning to open in, in downtown Waterville, and, and, you know, they used that for student housing instead. So there's a lot going on here, but the thing that kind of stands out to most people is just the sheer testing. You know, they've done 41 thousand tests since they've been back in class. What does Colby College do if somebody comes down with coronavirus? They have quarantine and isolation housing set aside, right? So the idea being that if you have the virus or you come in close contact with someone who did have it, you can kind of stay in a separate space still in town, still taking your classes, but you're kind of removed from the general population so as not to to risk further spread. But just given kind of the way that the Colby program has gone so far, they haven't really had to use a whole lot of that yet. One of the other things that they do is they require students to download an app 
on their phone, which helps with the contact tracing and helps deliver them the results of their test. Tell us a little bit about that. So, you know, it's something that's installed on most students' phones, and, you know, it does uh, deliver the test results. And what's impressive about that is, you know, you can get a test on, on Wednesday and get your results by Thursday, which is some of the quickest turnarounds for testing that I've certainly heard of. I mean, I've been tested here in, in Washington, D.C. through the public program, and it, it took several days and, you know, it was sent to me via email. So kind of having that all on hand is, is certainly useful. And, you know, the app also has other aspects of it. You know, when, when students go to campus or, you know, just going about their day, they're required to list their symptoms, you know, if they're feeling any symptoms of the virus, fatigue or, or fever or kind of loss of taste or smell. And so in that way, the idea is that you can kind of track ahead of the virus before it shows up in, in the test necessarily. Tell us a little bit more about how the testing works, because my understanding is they have a big tent, the students file in, and then they administer the test to themselves before they pass it along to be sent out to the lab? So, you know, kind of any time during the day, you'll see students migrating towards the central tent on campus. And part of that, they check in, they get their little vial, and then they administer the test themselves. It's a nasal test, and it's not the long ones that I think people associate with the beginning of the pandemic. These are just kind of in the lower nasal cavity, and they swap both nostrils, put it in this little tube, and, and kind of give it back to the person who is watching them take the test. And they send it off, and, and like I said, they get their results back within 24 hours, which is pretty impressive. I really uh, like the way you ended your article, kind of the overview of what was going on there at Colby College. And they have a robust testing system, strict mask wearing. They need to be wearing them almost all the time. Restricted social gatherings and willing students. I think that's a very important part of this because the stories that we've been hearing from other schools the kids are partying, not wearing the mask, all that stuff. But the students there at Colby College really seem to have bought into this. They want in-person instruction. They want to learn that classic way. So they're willing to go through all these steps. And, you know, I think a part of it, too, is just a lot of the students that I spoke to feel safer on the Colby campus than they do at their own home. You know, I talked to several students from Houston. I talked to a student from Wisconsin. And what they told me is that the way that the virus is being treated in their local communities is nowhere as stringent as it is being treated at, at Colby. So I think that's a big part of it, too, where it's you have students who are really want to get through the semester. They had a hard time with the transition to digital instruction in the spring, and they're, they're kind of aware of what it can look like if things aren't going well. A lot of them also told me that they saw other colleges try and fail to get through their in-person semesters, and I think that was weighing on the minds of, of a lot of the students as well. They say that it makes everything feel pretty normal, like a normal college campus. They're walking around, they're interacting with each other, they're going to their classes, hanging out with their laptops and everything. It makes it feel like that classic college experience, which I'm sure a lot of them really do appreciate. What I was struck by when I was on campus was just how normal it was, you know, and, and they tell you in journalism school, you know, you're not supposed to write about things going, quote unquote, correctly. But it was extraordinary when you consider the fact that so many colleges have tried to have this in-person experience and just weren't able to do it. And there were kids playing Frisbee and, you know, walking to class and getting their studies done. I mean, it was really impressive to see. Chris Quintana, national education reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.